0: In three, two, one.
1: Today's marketplace is more competitive than ever. The way people buy has changed. And salespeople and sales leaders need to understand the new rules for old tools if they are to be successful. To help us understand how to evolve our salespeople and our sales leaders is author, speaker, and sales performance coach, Jim Pansero. Well, hi, Jim. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Michael, honored to be here. Now, Jim, and by the way, happy new year, happy holidays. Hopefully you had a time to rejuvenate and now we're starting a new year, ready to get back into
0: it. Yeah, some of us never stopped.
1: No, seriously, it was a nice, deserved break, but we're usually busy in the off season too. Jim, in a lot of your writings and a lot of the videos that you produce, you talked about how the sales force and how selling has evolved over the last five to seven years, and it's changed radically. We generally have, I would say, a dysfunctional selling process now because we have a dysfunctional buying process. But how have you seen it change? And the pandemic, of course, accelerated everything. What are some of the changes you've seen and where do you see it going?
0: Well, I think that this evolution is a very critical topic to selling because a lot of people have strong skills, but the skills are from 20, 30, or even 40 years ago. I think the critical thing to identify is COVID, I believe, did not dramatically change how selling works. COVID just brought together some natural evolutions that were already occurring. Right. If we look at the most significant change in selling in the last five to seven years, it's really been because the millennial philosophy of leadership those people that are up to 40 years old have now become much more in a leadership role. And frankly, their biases have infected how everybody buys. Just like when baby boomers came into power, right. they biased how everybody bought, no matter what your age was. And if you look at millennials, there's a couple of things they don't like. One is they don't like salespeople. Absolutely. They don't like to feel like they're being pushed. Right. The the If you look at the commercials, you see so many commercials on TV that portray a salesperson as a very negative, pushy, slimy person. So if you look, people in sales today don't Want to be called salespeople everybody's getting additional titles something because very few people have salesperson on a business card or on their email signature block but if we look what's happened is the selling process has shortened a couple of things major happened the one is people have less time it used to be you could go and spend an hour just chatting with a customer about their life and family and they were happy to do it built relationships today people go i just don't have time for that even if you're a preferred vendor Right. I don't have time to spend an hour in chit chat. The second and probably the most profound thing is because millennials don't trust salespeople. It has pervaded to everybody this lack of trust. So that today, the average salesperson is brought in much later in the buying process than they ever have before. As an example, 10 years ago, if you and your family wanted to buy a hot tub, right. what would you have done? Well,
1: you do you your homework, right?
0: Tubs. Yeah. Yeah, you, you're on the hot Go tub to the store, dealership. Yeah, store, yeah, exactly. Pick up some brochures, come back, talk to your family, then go back and buy a thing, make a decision. Right. Look today, I asked groups in my presentations, okay, you want to buy a hot tub today? What's the first thing you would do? And we see it in separation by generations on that question, by the way, right. because the older people, first thing they say is, I got to Google it. Right. Younger people, the first thing they say is, I got to ask my friends. Right. I have a friend that is about to go through hip surgery and she's been driving all of us nuts. Because at a party, she'll talk to anybody that's had hip surgery. She'll talk to anybody that has an opinion on it. And when I ask her, what did the doctor say? She said, well, I haven't talked to him yet. I'm not ready. So the same thing in sales. By the time a salesperson is brought into a selling situation, unlike 10 or 15 years ago, the customers made decisions. They've done research. They've actually made some biased decisions of what they think they want, even if it's not valid.
1: At one time, companies had the power because they maintain the information. The salesperson was needed because they could go and explain the product or the service. And you needed to talk to them. Today, as you say, they can go online, internet, and within minutes, sometimes they know more than the salesperson they're about to go meet with. They know the competitors. They know the pricing. They can shop. They're coming in well-informed. There's more of a
0: balance. And imagine if you were a distributor, you're carrying 20,000 SKUs, 20,000 products. And a customer is only interested in one. They've spent an hour researching it online. Great point. You're not even sure you still carry it. Yep. So we have this disconnect where it's putting a lot of pressure. I think the critical thing is salespeople are still critically needed based on the industry. If we look at retail sales, so much of that has shifted to the internet. Right. Where you don't have to deal with a salesperson. Look how many car commercials are basically saying you can buy a car without having to deal with a salesperson. Carvana, Use a now, brand. What was the one commercial where the guy was standing on his car saying, I just bought a car and it didn't suck.
1: Yeah. And they don't talk about the cars. They talk about the process they sell and position the sales process, the buying process, rather than the vehicle itself.
0: So in retail, we've seen kind of moving away from the salesperson as the frontline contact. Right. In retail, but in business to business, it's still critical because the average business to business buyer is not a one time sale. Right. Even if you buy a piece of equipment that you're only going to buy it once. You still need maintenance. You still need service. You still need accessories. So the role of selling is still going to be here. It's just changing what it requires a salesperson to do. Because it used to be a salesperson could be successful in selling just by being reactive. Right. I joke at my program to say most salespeople follow a three-step selling process of show up, suck up, and pucker up. There's reactive. The average sales call starts off with the sales reps asking, anything you need, anything coming up, anything I can help with. How's the family? And they'll term those four questions as a successful sales call. Right. But look how reactive it is. Yeah. One of the things I have found in my own selling, and I teach it to others, is we can't afford the old assumption of selling that was called a blank page.
1: Right.
0: And the blank page selling was you went in with a pad of paper and a pen, blank sheet of paper, and you ask the customer, what do you need? What keeps you awake at night? What mm-hmm. would you most like to improve? What don't you like with your current vendor you'd like to see disappeared? And all these kind of questions. And then the customer would actually answer you. If I called you on, we didn't know each other. right? And I right. called on you to sell you something for your business. So new electronic equipment. right? If I said, so what are your needs? What keeps you awake at night? I bet you'd say ineffective salespeople and throw me out because your attitude is, you no, know, we're not going to go back to the beginning. I'm not going to help you do your job. No. So today, what tends to work most in selling is assumptive questions. I do sales and sales leadership consulting sure. and if I was going to call on you to talk, you're the owner of a sales company and have a sales team, I wouldn't start off by saying, what do you need? What drives you the most crazy? What would you like to improve? Because it doesn't convey any expertise on my part. Right. So the customer will probably be distrustful. So I have to start off with an assumptive question. If we're having a sales call and I was calling on you, what I would say is looking at distributors or looking at equipment manufacturers or service providers like yourself in business to business, I watch these organizations are having these three challenges. They can't get enough salespeople that have any kind of skills coming into them. They're having a hard time even getting customers to talk to them. And supply chain disruption is just destroying anything you're trying to get done proactively. How are you dealing with that? Exactly. Now, if you would have said those are the three hot buttons you have, if I tell you what they are, now I'm persuasive. Now I'm a trusted advisor. And now I'm more than a salesperson just trying to hustle you. Right. So it's like we have to be more proactive. We have to be more initiative. And we have to come in and state what we assume is happening or what the opportunities are or where we can help. We can't just start with the blank page anymore because it doesn't give us any credibility.
1: No. Well, even as the buyer has that new information now and access to the information as sellers, we also have information to them. So it's a two-way street. You cover a lot of this and you talk about this with new rules, old tools. And I think that's the heart of what you're talking about, where the tools are still effective. It's just there's new rules when we apply the tools and how we employ them in our particular strategy. Is that right?
0: I think it's 100%. If you look, steps of a sales call are still critical to selling. Personality flexibility to understand how different buyers buy is right. still critical. Technical skills are still critical. But here's where the problem comes in most industries. Most salespeople are biased and out of balance. If we look at what success we need from a salesperson And I'm talking more business-to-business now because I want to be careful. Real estate, retail sales really is much more of a relationship, less technical kind of presentation. But if we look, there are three sets of skills a salesperson needs to have to be successful long-term. We can put it as a triangle, three points on a triangle. The one point is they need to know technically what they're talking about and how their products or services are used and the technical aspects of application of what they can do and how they can improve a business. The second area is they need to understand how to sell and be persuasive and convince the customer to buy this. The third is they need to understand the financial implications and the financial impact to show a customer how even though we're a higher price, we're a lower total cost. Right. The problem with most salespeople is they're dramatically out of balance. The average salesperson spends 80% of their time on the technical aspect, 20% on the selling, and there is no financial. I did a lot of work with John Deere dealerships, trained about 4,000 other people over the years, a just tremendous organization. And there was several customers because they were sometimes 20% more expensive than their competition for, in effect, the same functional equipment. Right. It did the same job. Now, they think they did it better, but it was still functionally doing the same thing, 20% higher. And they actually had customers that would, they would walk into to talk about it after the customer had several quotes and the customer would give them a blank sheet of paper and say, okay, you're 20% higher. This is a $400,000 piece of equipment. Show me how I'm going to get my 80,000 back. And they hand them a piece of paper saying, show me on paper. And most salespeople collapse because they have the technical aspects They have the selling and have taught how to ask questions, but most of them have not centered on the financials. So because of that, the sale could even collapse because a salesperson can't answer. And you watch some people, they only sell by technical. Right. They don't even really understand selling. They walk in and say, hey, I'm an engineer too. and They start talking technical.
1: Solutions. They've moved into the solution model, which we've used for years, but people don't really buy the solutions. I think they buy the outcomes. What's the outcome I'm looking
0: for? And that's
1: fair. Yeah. And the solution is part of it, obviously. It's a tool. The outcome the solution provides, and that's what you're talking about. So does it cover the needs? But then it's the job of the sales rep, I think, to, as you say, to expand that so it shouldn't be compared on price. So is price the only criteria? No. What is the criteria or criterion? And make sure, does it meet the outcome that we're looking for?
0: I I think 100% on target. Jade Levinson in the 1960s was the first one that identified you don't go into a harbor store to buy a drill, you go in the harbor store to buy the opportunity to make holes. That's right. Disconnect occurring when the rep in the store is pushing their drills. Wow, that's going
1: back. Holy oh, well, I'm an old guy. Me too. So that's why I say I remember. I'm going, holy, has it been that long? So. One of
0: my friends introduced me at one of the speakers meeting and say he's been a professional speaker and sales trainer for so long. His first brochure was on papyrus. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> I to add to this. Yeah. Um, the thing we have to identify is selling has evolved about every 10 years. Every 10 years. What gives you a competitive advantage has morphed or evolved because of the competitive reactions the last model did. So if we look, the 1960s, -hmm. success in selling was based on ability to give a demo. Right, and the demo was biased, so that it actually would kind of trick the customer into thinking the product was performing better than it was. Right, but it was all based on these biased demos. Customers wised up. So in the 70s, the demos lost favor, and that's when all the high-pressure selling came about. If anybody's still around that was trained in the 1970s, like I was, you learned all the closing techniques: that's the right. Ben Franklin clothes, the alternative choice clothes, the puppy dog close, the grab by the tie until they say yes close, and all these assumptive kind alternative of alternative just- choice yeah.
1: clothes that.
0: Yeah. yeah, manipulative. They all right. were meant to manipulate the buyer in, or forcing them or entrapping them into saying yes. Yeah. Well, customers wised up. At the same time, there was people going around doing seminars for salespeople on learning all the best closing techniques of the day in the 70s. There was also people going around to purchasing departments presenting to purchasing agents. This is how to neutralize or avoid the top closing techniques people are using. So very quickly it died. So then the 80s, the marketplace reacted in just the opposite direction, by saying, okay, our competitive advantage is our relationships. Friends buy from friends. No more hassles. No more pressure. Let's go to lunch. Right. And at Christmas, we're going to give you a couple fifths of liquor. And it was just this all, it was a gift-giving kind of thing. Right. I got a letter from a customer once around that time in the early 80s that said our gift-giving philosophy for Christmas, please don't. They said, if you give us anything over a $20 value, we will either return it, or if it is not possible, we will donate it, but we will not accept it. I called my contact and said, what's happening here? He said, last year, somebody tried to give one of our purchasing agents a boat.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing It just this got out story. of hand
0: of this relationship selling. And it wasn't giving us a competitive advantage. Customers are still going out for bids." but they were accepting all the gifts and the football tickets and all the other stuff
1: to your point there's still industries that do that on oil and gas industry i do a lot of work in and i'll have clients phone me up and they'll go we're ticked off we don't know what to do and i'm like what's the matter and they're going our client wants us to buy him a truck and i said they want you to buy a truck and i said yeah i said now who's the client i said is this the same client you fly on a private jet every february down to mexico and go fishing and they're like yeah so competitors come in and they're willing to buy the truck. And he goes, yeah. And I said, oh, someone's just up the ante on you. And that's really what it is. And the reason companies have policies against craft is it is influential and it does work. Some people, as to your point, you can't even give them a coffee mug with your logo on it. But there are things we can do that create value and create the same impact of that, isn't there?
0: Yeah, and what happens is all of these past things, giving demos in the 60s, right? knowing the structures of selling in the 70s, even though it was manipulative then, the 80s right. of relationships, they're still critical. The difference is they're no longer a competitive advantage. Nope. That's the critical thing because then the 90s hit and because relationship selling wasn't working, that's when consultative selling kicked in. Friends don't buy from friends, friends buy from experts. Right. So, consultative right. selling is I come and do a whole bunch of free stuff for you to show you why I'm a value and why you want me. Well, customers realize real quick, all they have to do is keep asking to vendors for free stuff when they're bidding and they'll get more services free than what they're actually proposing on. Right. So then that stopped working as a competitive advantage. So around 2000, the competitive advantage became negotiated partnerships. One of my customers proposed in this environment, said, look, we'll do the research like we used to do up front. It's about $10,000 worth of work. We're going to charge you 10000 If we win the bid, after you've done all the bidding process, we'll give you $10,000 credit. But if you don't choose us, you still paid for the work. Yeah. That's negotiated partnerships. Right. Then it became, after that, 2010 became the Amazon model, where it was all speed, efficiency, and ease of use. And now today, it's all based on connectivity and information control. Interesting. So, so we look at what does it take to gain a competitive advantage? All that other stuff beforehand is still good. It's just not enough. Right. But if you ask a salesperson, why are you successful? The number one answer I still get is either because they're a technical expert and can give a great demo or because the relationships they have with their customers. And I'm thinking, that's great, but that's 50-year-old stuff. Right? What are you doing to stay current? If you look at the connectivity and the information controls... Your website has to be current, what's going on? People want to join a community, they just don't want to buy from you. So they have resources to help them. So the question is, not just are you aware of and using all of the skills from history that still are needed as a foundation, but it's minimum requirements of the job. Now, how do we take it one step higher? Because it is such a relative competitive environment.
1: This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C, and B2B companies gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Jim Pencero. Well, since selling has changed new rules with old tools, and it's obviously still evolving. And so we can look at another decade of where do you see it going? Where do you see it going 10 years from now, if you're going to think into the future? And then as a follow-up to that, has sales management, sales leadership kept pace? Has it kept pace over the last five to seven years or the last two, three decades? How have you seen that evolve as well? So where do you see it heading? And then where do we come at it from, from a sales leadership point of view?
0: The reality is, we used to have as a salesperson a competitive advantage because we had more information than the customer did. That has gone away. So it's really trying to convince the customer and showing them how you have processes to help them more than a product to sell them. It isn't that I'm going to sell you a car. That's not going to be my competitive edge. It's going to be that if you buy the car from me, this is how we're going to support you over the life of the car. You look at some of the high end brands. It's the service relationship that's the most critical thing, not necessarily the car. Right. And so I see that continuing where it's almost more the process that leads to the results are becoming the critical determinant, not excellent just point. selling the results. Yeah, excellent point. And so yeah. if I go in and say, I can double your sales, I doubt if you say that as a positive comment, your first reaction is going to be rather suspect going, how are you going to do that? Right. Because you're going, wait, that's you, you can't throw results at me. You got to show me how we're going to get there and why I need to go there. You can't just show me what I'm going to get when I get there.
1: It's an excellent point. And now that you say that it resonates in so many other areas. So an example I use, I did around earnings where if say you want to earn $100,000 a year. We have a set of behaviors in selling that you can go and you'll earn $100,000 a year. Well, your next goal isn't 105, 110, it's maybe 150 or 200,000 a year. Well, if you keep doing that same process that you were doing, say behaviors without changing as we do in golf, our form, because our form has to change which is our process, you're going to get the same result. So, with each growth period, if you will, as organizations try to grow, they got to change their form, which is their process. And that's the point you're making. And one of the
0: things that's happened in sales training is selling has become now paint by numbers. Right. If we go back 15 or 20 years ago, the best sales teams were really just a collection of independent gunfighters. Each person had their own style. Frankly, in some distribution businesses, each sales rep was selling a different set of products. They would say, well, we don't like this in our company. I don't like that, so I don't sell that model. Or I don't sell that. I don't like to deal with that stuff. I only sell this. And it was a bunch of independent gunfighters. Today, we don't have the time for that inefficiency. We can't afford to reinvent our business for every single customer we talk to. We've got to move too fast. Our quotas are too high. So it really has become more paint-by-numbers. How do we put a process in place? We don't need you to be a painter and put a bland canvas every time you talk to a customer on your board. We need you to be a printer where it looks unique to the customer. It looks customized, but it's a very structured process. Right. That's the critical thing with it. And as part of that, Helping salespeople, the requirements of skills are becoming even more demanding. You know, that the average salesperson, 90% of all salespeople I have found cannot write the steps of a sales call down. Yeah. Or the steps they write down were obsoleted about 30 years ago, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: but they're intuitive. I joke and say most sales reps are like the Hilari bird. Ever hear of the Hilari bird? Yeah. It's a three foot bird, lives in four foot grass, spends his whole life saying, where the hell are we? And it's an easy test. If a salesperson right. listening to our call today, yeah. here's a test for that salesperson. First question, who's the most important account you're working on? They'll always have an answer. Well, I'm sure you have, because they're so important. You have something scheduled. What's the next thing you're going to do with them? They always have an answer. But then when they get done saying, I'm going to go talk to them, and I'm going to present this and see if I can get some interest. And I'll say, great. And then what are you going to do? And the answer is always, it depends. If you draw a horizontal line out, where on the left-hand side, you have the word identify at mm-hmm. the bottom of the line, and on the right-hand side, you have close. What is one cycle of your selling process? Even if it takes 18 months, what's one cycle? What steps do you go through? I will draw that visual out, to show it to an experienced, successful sales rep, selling a couple hundred thousand dollars in income a year. And they still are Hilari birds. They only think one move ahead. And when I lay out the whole process and I say, what do you do? What's your process? You've been doing this for 10 years. What do you do from the time you identify till the time you close? What are the steps you go through and take a customer through? The standard answer here is it depends.
1: Yeah, that's where those micro commitments come in handy. Like what are those eight or 10 or 15 steps? And I think it goes for the customer journey as well. How do we touch? We call it touch points when we're working with our clients. And I'll say to an organization, well, how many touch points do you have? I get eight, 14, 20. No one's on the same page, nor can they even draw them out or identify them, as you've said.
0: And touch points are fair, but they are a component of what the steps are. Right. What's the proactive path you want to take a customer on? Yeah. And for most salespeople, they haven't thought about it. They just keep reacting. They're reactive salespeople. They're not proactive. I had a great title for my association presentations, frankly, I had to stop using because of the political environment. But the title, it was meant for owners and for managers. And sure. the title of the program was, we need arsonists, not firefighters, which was a great analogy for salespeople. But right. as politically, that's probably not a great title. Yeah, no. No, there. there might be better ones. Yeah. But still the idea of this, we need initiators, not responders. Right. We don't need somebody servicing the account. We need somebody proactively showing the customer how they can improve the service the customer's getting and the results they're getting.
1: Well, this is where being the trusted advisor and knowing about the industry, working the verticals, positioning within the verticals, and that you talk about is important and critical. If you're calling that executive or the C-level executive, they're already one ahead of you. You have to demonstrate quickly that you have something to value to them to make that appointment worthwhile or there. They're I agree. Committed. I
0: love it. A trusted advisor is the most abused self-serving sales term that exists. Right. If we look, there's four levels of selling. I could have one of four relationships with you as a buyer. I can have one of four sure. relationships. The first level, the bottom level is I'm just an order taker, right? You have no loyalty to me. You don't even trust my expertise but it's an efficient way to get something ordered. And the only reason you stay doing business with me is convenience. I don't have to hassle with it. Right. But the next level up is you are a solutions provider where you're starting to bring answers to what's happening. But the third level up is where you're really trying to impact the customer's profitability with your ideas and significantly improving their business. But then the fourth level is a trusted advisor. My definition of a, a trustful advisor is a trusted advisor is somebody that the customer will ask advice on stuff you don't sell because they so trust your opinion. They come to you because you know this topic better than anybody else or this product line. That's not a trusted advisor. That's just the expert that's bringing solutions.
1: Product specialist, yeah, or service it, specialist. Right.
0: But understand the difference though is proactive versus reactive. The order taker is very reactive. The uh, bringing solutions in a trusted advisor is very proactive. But salespeople view that if I'm my customer solutions, and we have a good relationship for my product mix, and I'm their go to person for cleaning supplies or for equipment or whatever it is. All of a sudden, we promote ourselves to trusted advisor when I don't think the customer would say that. Right. Interesting. And yeah, you know, because a trusted advisor That's is somebody point. that goes across multiple points. Right. Well, Not I think just, it's
1: knowing what's going on, how things impact their clients. What are the factors? What are the things that are hurting them or could help them? Or outside
0: what you sell. Yeah. That's the difference. And my concern is when I hear people talking in that, and I'll say, what do you mean by you want to talk about those things? They always come back to product or solution specific to what they sell. Right. Now, by the way, that's a positive, but it's not a trusted advisor. Let's no. get real with terms.
1: Right. It's a good perspective. I totally get it. We always say if it's related to your core or your core competency or your product, or your service, you should be doing it. It's part of what you do, your process. When it's got nothing to do with your core competence, or product, now you're exceeding expectations and creating distinctive value. Yeah.
0: Now that's trusted advisor. Now you can still be successful bringing solutions, yeah. but isn't it amazing how many salespeople that are just bringing solutions yeah. in their specific product or service area, they brag to their management about how they're a trusted advisor to their customers. Yeah. Well, I don't hear a lot of customers saying, boy, that salesperson's a trusted advisor. I tend to only hear salespeople saying how they are a trusted advisor to their customer. It doesn't seem to go both ways.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And I ask audience members all the time, I'll pick on somebody and I'll just say, how many business books do you read? You're in this industry. How many business books do you read on this particular industry? And the common answer is one, zero, two. I'll get somebody might have three or four. Most of the time it's zero or none. People Mm -hmm. quit reading. And to become more well-rounded, I find that reading works well. One of the strategies I use, and I'll just share it with you because I'd be curious on your own opinion. We we talked about, we can't send mugs. We can't do gifts. We can't do things. I do books. So what I do as part of my strategy for delivering distinctive value is I will actually find a good book, whatever that happens to be for that quarter. And I send to my top economic relationships, a copy of the book. I do a brief summary on it. I do a write include it in there, put my card, Hey, send it by FedEx. And it passes all scrutiny because it's a book. And it doesn't have my logo on it. doesn't have my branding on it. It's not linked to any transaction or a deal. And I have CEOs of major corporations, and actually you and I have similar clients, so you know, some of them already. And they'll say to me, Hey, what are you reading this quarter? Can you read this for me? Or they'll make a recommendation because they're talking to their buddies. So I use other bits of information, then try and find the the gems out of it and send them those gems. And you're the candy man. You're their go-to. You're their hub. You're that focal point of which they can go and get value. And that's how I do it. Do you have any strategies on how you do it? Because you're still actively selling and positioning things. How do you position yourself as that trusted advisor?
0: The best thing that's worked for me is posting videos. I post 150 videos on LinkedIn and on YouTube a year. And we're getting impressions anywhere from 1,200 to 2,500 impressions. And about 20% of them tend to watch the video. And I get a lot of responses from people. I've gotten business directly from it. But more importantly, if I go and present to an audience, like an association, I'll say, I publish these videos. Raise your hand if you've heard any of my videos. And usually a third of the room raises their hand. So to me, it's an outreach program just to be known and to be aware with the idea that the goal then is to generate a conversation of more specificity. That's right.
1: And you're prolific. So, your, your content's amazing. I follow your content. And I mean, that's why we're having this conversation. My tool is the podcast. I'm also on with LinkedIn, but the podcast does
0: that for me. Same, same idea. It's interesting, the difference, by the way, pre-COVID, I used to have a trick I did with my videos. And on a Sunday afternoon when I needed more videos, I would take a selfie stick in my cell phone because the camera then was doing a great job. And a couple extra shirts and a file folder with a bottle of water. And I would go to one of our local hotels here. The big ones, like the Anatole or yeah. the Gaylord or these, sure. these big yeah. ones. And on Sunday afternoon, usually the staff has completed setting up for Monday. And before COVID, the rooms were unlocked. So I would walk around the hotel, find unlocked meeting rooms, sit down, record about five videos, change shirts, go to a different room, record about five videos, and just would do that and walk away with 20 videos in the afternoon. Yeah. And when my customers were watching the videos, they would say, Jim, I can tell your success. And I go, well, how can you tell? And he said, well, you're always recording these things right before a speech somewhere around the country. Well, this was really working. I was just working in the local hotels. Yeah, but that- then COVID hit oh. and everything locked up. And after about two weeks of recording in front of a bookcase, I actually had customers complaining, going, you know, this is getting pretty boring. What happened to all the travel? So that's when we put a studio in so I can have different backgrounds and stuff going on. Yeah, it
1: definitely <laughs> makes a change. Makes because
0: change. of making a visual variety. But it was kind of funny that I kind of got right. caught in my system of, <laughs> of looking persuasive.
1: Well, we've all had to learn to adjust for that. And that pandemic was nasty. I remember crying for a week when that hit because everything canceled, right? But then pivoting into virtuals, hybrids. I mean, there was nothing live again. It's starting to come back, which we're seeing that, which is nice. And I know you've been busy.
0: I did 50 free webinars during the first year of COVID. I went to every association I'd ever worked with and said, you helped me. It's time for me to help you. I know you have no budget. Brilliant. You have no money to spend. You have no idea what's going to happen with your membership. Some of you are suspending dues till so we have no money for a year. This is a gift. I will give you a webinar, one hour on what your members can do. And it's up to you if you tell them it's free or not. If you want to tell them that you've paid for it and that helps you, please do it. I think I did about 50 of them.
1: Charge a dollar and then don't disclose it. That's right. Good for you. Well, that's why you're always I mean, trying to try to get visibility. Absolutely. It's staying relevant, right? And you're very much relevant, like you're real-time selling. That's why I love following your stuff is I'm the same as you. My last sales call was early this morning. My next one's going to be an hour and a half after our call and where I have calls scheduled. And so I'm still working with the clients and it keeps you sharp, keeps the game sharp, which is actually a good lead into the next question I have for you. So let's say I'm a leader, I'm a sales leader. I'm managing a sales team today. How can I stay ahead of what's coming down the pipe tomorrow? And then what are the skills that my team are probably going to need to compete effectively?
0: This is just a critical point. And I think a couple of foundational points is sales leadership, because we have such higher volumes we have to achieve in such a complex environment with such disruption of delivery that the job of a sales leader and coach has become even more critical than it was. In the old days, when it was a bunch of independent gunfighters, the job of a sales manager was more motivational and there was a problem, average thing the average sales manager did in the old days was get involved in special pricing, expediting, problem solving, and customer thank you calls. If you look 10 years ago, they were a reactive support position because each rep was doing a completely different. And as long as you were selling above average, we were happy to have you, no matter right. how you were doing So all we did was support your uniqueness and independence, even if it was driving us crazy. <laughs> right. So because of that, the job of a sales manager tended to be very reactive support function, special pricing, expediting, problem solving, thank you calls. Right. What we've seen is a shift that the sales manager now needs to be a more proactive position. Here's the difference. If we draw out this ID to close line that I talked about, just a horizontal line with identify on one end and close on the other, representing one cycle of selling, there is a critical turning point in the middle of that, that impacts all sales. And that middle point is when the sales rep issues their proposal to a customer. And the reason that's such a critical point is before you issue your proposal, you have power. You can ask the customer questions and they'll answer it. You can do research and they'll let you. But as soon as I give you my proposal, it shuts everything down. So if I said, hey, can I talk to some of your people? They'll go, well, if we select you, we already got your bid, we got what we needed, we'll get back to you. So when the sales rep issues their proposal, they lose all their power. Two problems. One problem is most sales reps were taught decades ago, get your proposal in front of the customer as soon as possible. Right. Which means you lose all your power as soon as possible. Yeah. The second thing is the average sales manager up until just recently, their only focus was after a proposal was issued that they would then help the sales rep close it. Because a lot of companies, they didn't even know the sales rep was working on it until the sales rep had to issue a proposal and it was registered in their computer configurator. So the manager now knew about it. Now the manager comes and says, let me help you close this business. And look what's left. The sales rep has lost all their power. So the only thing left is for the manager to either cut the price to win the business or to promise additional services that cost the company money to win the business. But it's this reactive throwing of services to try to close the business. The change in sales leadership today is the sales rep becoming much more of a selling process coach instead of a transactional manager. Transactional manager gets involved after the quote is issued. A selling process manager gets involved from beginning. So a selling process manager said, hey, I got a hot lead if you as a sales rep said that, the manager would really say, get in here and let's talk about what are you going to do? What are your plans? And then what are you going to do? And what's your path? So what we're seeing is the job of a sales manager is becoming less of the support function like it was 10 or 20 years ago, and much more of an actual leadership function of a strategist and a director, not to tell you what to do, but to help you discover that we've got some best practices here, steps and processes. that if you follow them, you got a much higher probability of winning the business. And so it's this shift of the job of a manager becoming more of a proactive coach and leader. The difference is only in four words. Transactional managers only getting involved after the proposal's issued. They totally only ask their salespeople what and who questions. What are you going to sell and who's it going to be? Right. What do you got coming up this year? It's 2023. Give me your forecast. What are you going to sell and who's it going to be to? That's a transactional, just pushing the numbers. Right. Selling process manager is gonna ask two different questions, not what and who. They're gonna ask how and why. How are you going after the business? Why aren't you calling on this person? So we see a, just a, even a difference in the language is very simple. But the problem is most sales managers have never been trained. One of my favorite questions to ask sales managers, how'd you become a sales manager? Oh, well, there's only one of four reasons. Promoted. The first reason was you sucked up more than anybody else. Hey boss, cool <laughs> car. Right. The second reason you stayed around longer than anybody else. So you just survived by attrition. The third reason was dad thought it was time. (laughs)
1: That's a good one, yeah.
0: (laughs) We called those CEOs, children employed by owners. And then the final reason was you became a manager because putting you in management had the least negative impact on total corporate sales, taking you out of sales, putting you in management. we can laugh about it, but most managers didn't become sales managers because they were such great coaches. They performed on the technical side or the experience side of just outlasting everybody. Company needed a manager, they got promoted. Well, an easy way to describe the problem that that occurs is if we forget all job titles in a company, there's only three positions. The first position is you're a doer. A doer is somebody that's paid to do something. If you're a salesperson, you're a doer. You have no other responsibilities. You have no other coaching. Nobody's reporting to you. You have no other departments that you're managing. You are a doer. You're measured based on what you do. The next level up is a doing manager. A doing manager is if there's six pieces of machine tooling, one of those positions might be the supervisor and their responsibility is to make sure the other five are doing it well. Right. So the supervisor isn't going to do 100% performance, but they're expected to do 70%. Right. That's a doing manager. I'm responsible for my own production as well as making sure others do their job. A doing manager in a sales position is a sales manager who's also carrying territory, acting for that account as a sales rep, not as a manager. Right, And that's just a disaster when That happens, that has very rarely worked. Then the third level is a managing manager. Now, we define a managing manager does nothing. Have we described your boss? It's a cute (laughs) joke, but it's the idea the head of GM is not going to build any cars this week, right? And they're not going to sell any, it's not their job. Their job is to make sure everybody else has all the resources they need to get the job done. Yeah, if you're leading a company, your job is administrative and personnel, it's usually not technically involved with what your company is actually doing. So, if we look, Most managers without being trained and become a sales manager, they tend to approach a job as a doer, not as a managing manager. I was so impressed when I had an office years ago, I had two other people. We had three of us in the office working when I lived in Cincinnati and I had a computer guy that would come and just about once a week come over and just help us. And I always got a kick as he went around and helped my other staff people. Whenever they'd ask him a question about the computer, he put his hands in his pockets And then he would answer. Every time we'd ask him a question, he'd put his hands in his pockets. I finally said, what are you doing? And he said, I have to do this. It's a simple key. All I have to do to solve your problem is to do this and hit the keyboard. But if I did that, it's just going to upset you because you don't even know what I did. So to make sure you're the one hitting the keys, I have to put my hands in my pockets to protect me from... Doing it for you. And I thought that was brilliant. But you look at most sales managers, they go on a sales call with a salesperson. The customer asks the question. Sales manager answers like a salesperson, not as a manager.
1: How has coaching and motivation evolved then? And as leaders, how can we evolve ourselves so that we're a little more aligned with our current realities. I
0: think that's a spectacular question. A mentor of mine when I was in graduate school and first beginning in selling that really changed my life. His name was Bill McGrady. He was in Cincinnati. He's passed away decades ago. But he changed my life in selling because he showed me several of the structures and processes of how selling works. And one of the things he taught is the four rules of motivation. The first rule of motivation is you cannot motivate anybody to do anything. Right, It's impossible. If you're a parent, you know that one. Yeah. Second rule is everybody's highly motivated. The third rule is that people are motivated for their bias and their reasons and their background and their culture, not because of yours. So the fourth rule is all we can do is build an environment so that people will motivate themselves. So somebody that's a motivational speaker today is really in trouble because people don't care. But if you help me understand how I could do better and how I could be more successful, I become self-motivated by your ideas. And now we have results. So part of this process is this is why sales leadership today is the toughest it's ever been in the history of selling, because today sales manager could have four distinct generations reporting to them Yeah, all the way from the baby boomers to the Gen Xers to the millennials to the Gen Zs, all the way down. And each of them have a completely different mindset of motivation and what they want, what their interests are. What they
1: are. value, exactly
0: and what they want out of the job, why they're there.
1: Even how they buy and even how we sell. So as a baby boomer, I'm a baby boomer. And as you started going through the decades, starting with the seventies and eighties, I'm seeing myself in each one of those. And some of those we still use today when appropriate, I call them tools for the toolbox, but now I need some new tools. And that's why we have new rules for old tools, right? And we can find out more about that, by the way, and we'll put that in the links for, uh, in the show notes as well, because I think it's really appropriate to what we're talking about. So motivation has evolved and coaching is evolving. And again, we've got multiple generations. They're all motivated differently. We actually learn differently too. And so I think I have a pretty good grasp on that. Where can companies go and what's your recommendation? So if people want to get in touch with you, Jim, and take their performance up to the next level, you know you have a great line in a lot of your programs, and you finish a lot of your programs with, "Hey, we know you're good, but we know we can do better." So companies who want to get better, how do they get
0: involved with Jim Benson? Well, the, the first way with the most distance is just to follow me on LinkedIn or on YouTube, because all the videos I post are usually under 90 seconds, yeah, but on a specific sales or sales leadership topic. I also have a newsletter that comes out once a week that only lists the links of what I've talked about the last week. So a lot of managers will kind of track my stuff, but tracking people on LinkedIn sometimes is a little bit of a challenge if you're not technically competent. Right. So the newsletter just lists the names. And if you email me at jim, J-I-M at pancero.com, P-A-N-C-E-R-O, happy to sign you up for the newsletter. You can go to my website, pancero.com. I have some sales training videos that are on advancedsalesuniversity.com. Or you can call me because I'm always happy to answer a question.
1: Where you're, I think, prolific with and very generous with with your content is it helps people improve their processes so that the results or the outcomes they're desiring are a little more achievable in a competitive marketplace. And it makes business more fun, too.
0: It's interesting how many people challenge me on my posting philosophy. How come you're giving away hours of content? Yeah. But I don't know any other way to reach the market. I watch a lot of people that are working Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, and their whole goal is to get the maximum number of views, but they're not helping the person of any impact. It's more an entertainment or an attention-getting thing. Right. So when I started posting stuff online, I started posting 10 years ago on YouTube and then moved to LinkedIn when it really is my main foundation of doing this. But my concern is I just don't want to get somebody's attention. I want them to see connection to my content so they might actually want to continue the conversation right so to me i saw no other option but i had to provide content because i thought how else would i get credibility that somebody would then want to talk to me because it used to be you just do association programs people give you business cards you follow up you got three bookings for every association program you did that doesn't happen anymore no because there's so much information available to people online they a lot of times don't need to seek it out. So only if you ring their bell with an idea. I've had people call me about my videos and say, wow, this last video, I got a lot of questions about that. How did you get people's attention? Hopefully I got people's attention by the credibility of my content. That then is the foundation to begin a conversation. So frankly, I don't know another way to do it, except for to be able to dump it out there and to show people what you have and what's going on to try to ring their bells so they decide this is gonna be worthwhile.
1: When following your material, I always call it agitate versus irritate. There's some content that just irritates the daylights out of you. Yours are agitating in nature, I find. They make me think in a good way. So I'm not bugged with you. I'm looking at it and I'm going, hmm, good point. Oh, good point. And so it's, it's a reminder. So I always say agitate versus irritate. And I think you do a good job of that. And oh, well, thank you. And I mean that as a compliment, Jim, this has been a pleasure. You're strategic in your thinking, the details that you give, the examples that you give is real time, real life. And I know companies who will employ and bring you into their organizations would benefit from you and your insights, but the website's www.jimpensero.com. Well, No, it's all- w-
0: Oh, just pensero.com
1: And your yes. email's is jim at com.
0: Yes. There is one final thing I might add that if a salesperson listening to this, i have found that there's three components that if you can put all three components in place your sales will increase every time what are they first component well that cost extra (laughs) (laughs) the the first the first one is you need to have a stronger message of uniqueness yeah why based on all the options that i want to buy from you most people have a very weak message that is generic People say because of our high quality products, our strong love support, our competitive price, and you get me. Yeah. Just a generic answer everybody's given. So, yeah. first, you actually have a uniqueness of a one minute message of what value you can bring to a buyer. Right. The second thing is you understand the best practices, tools that allow you to be more effective and efficient in a shorter period of time. What are the best practices of selling today? It's become a very structured science because we have such high volumes we have to generate in sales and we have such little time in front of the customer to do it. So, we have to have our act when we go in to talk to them right we just can't go on a fishing expedition to see if they need anything we've got to come in and be with a high specificity of exactly what we can do and then the third and final area is that you have somebody that's effective coach to help you see more than you can see for yourself A mm-hmm. joke can say the average sales rep is like the hilari bird the job java manager is to grab the salesperson by the back of the neck lift them above the four foot grass show them where they're going then drop them back down and let them get the job done We don't jump down in the grass with them.
1: No, good point. It's a
0: changing world. I am honored and thank you for giving me a chance to share some of these ideas. Love your show and the other podcasts. You've had most of my friends on your show. So this is Exactly. So very excited. And I want to thank you for allowing me to be part of this.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Like you, they're generous and are really concerned with the greater good and sharing their insights and wisdom with the audience. So Jim, thanks again. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Bess Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.